Well, good morning again. I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. We continue our trek through this wonderful letter. I've titled this message, The Christian's Conflict in an Unchristian World. We'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and I invite you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. The Word of God says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Father, thank you for this word. Help us to be mindful of our position in Christ and by your enablement, by your energies, by your strength, by your graces and mercies and blessings, help our practice in Christ to conform to our position in Christ. Please bless these these precious people who are precious to you. Amen. You may be seated. We've come a long way from the first century world the world in which Peter and the early church lived, in many regards, we have the, moder- the marvels of modern medicine. We have cell phones. We have the Internet and television. And we've traveled into space, and we've even landed on the moon. And our war machines can inflict more damage with the press of a single button than the entire Roman legions could ever dream of inflicting. And yet, there are many ways, if you know where to look, where we can be reminded that we are living in exactly the same world as the early church. We are living under the same sun, and we are most certainly fighting the same fight. And this conflict that I'm referring to is the conflict that you and I and every Christian finds himself or herself in quite regularly. Now, the Christian life is depicted in several ways in the scriptures to illustrate the the gamut of all that the Christian experiences. It's likened to an athlete training and competing in a race to win a prize and like a farmer who sows his fields and reaps a harvest. And it's also likened to war. And I think this is the most vivid and sobering analogy because I think anyone who's been in war, anybody who's been wounded in war or who has, who knows what it's like to lose friends in war, would gladly trade his rifle for a pair of sneakers or a plow any day. But there's a reason why scripture likens our walk in Christ to warfare. So the truth is, we are at war. But with who? First, there's the devil, who is very real, contrary to what your friends and neighbors might say. Scripture says he is a deceiver, he is an afflictor, he is an accuser, he is a tempter, 
He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he is a dragon. Second, we war against the world because the world is still under the influence of the devil. It is still in bondage to sin. It still hates the light, and it still operates under the influence of darkness. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, in explaining the nature of our warfare, and I, I don't want anyone to think that we wage war against the world with guns and bombs and soldiers. For Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We war against the world. And third, we wage war with our own unredeemed unglorified body. And Paul goes into detail describing this conflict between the law of his mind and the law of his flesh in Romans 7. And then he concurs in Romans 8.23 that every Christian groans within himself in his flesh as we wait for our bodies to be redeemed. We groan. We groan. Sometimes walking the Christian walk is like running a sprint marathon barefoot over Legos. We groan. Being a Christian isn't always fun and games. So we have conflict from the devil, we have conflict from the world, and even ourselves. And beloved, this is the very same conflict that believers have been battered by for a long time, and it's the same conflict in which the church will be battered by for a long time. Until Jesus comes back, until Jesus takes us home. But we must ask, what are we to do in the meantime? What are our marching orders? Are we, are we supposed to be pacifists? Are we supposed to be marshmallows and just take it? Are we... Supposed to be very, are we supposed to put our stoic face on and act like we are above pain? That it doesn't matter to us. Do you think that will work? You think, you think the devil and the world and the flesh is subject to reverse psychology? No. That won't do. Because Peter has spent so much ink and paper, well, he, he used papyri, and, which was a leaf, but he, he used ink and paper telling you all about your blessed and privileged position in Christ. And remember, Christians, since you are in Christ, you are distinct. You are particular. You are the exception. In the the vein of this world, you must be reminded you are not normal. You stand out. You rub the world the wrong way. You irritate it. You are a burr in the world's saddle. It does not like you. Why? Because you are in Christ and the world did not like Christ. Because your holy position leads you to adopt a holy practice, you really do bug the devil, the world, and your flesh. And so Peter Peter does address the devil a little later. He will have something to say about him, but... For right now, he addresses the other two, the world and our flesh. And what he's doing here is giving our marching orders, and he's instructing those in Christ how they are to act. 
that they are to act like they are in Christ despite the fact that they still live in a world that hates Christ and loves sin. That's what Peter is doing. He is telling you how to let your practice come into conformity with your position in Christ, knowing that you are in a world that rejected Christ and hated Christ. So in verse 11, Peter's going to tell you, despite war being waged against your soul, have a godly inner discipline. War is being waged against your soul. Because of that, have a godly inner discipline. And then in verse 12, he says, despite being slandered by the world, have a godly outer discipline. Or you could say disposition. Despite being slandered by the world, have a godly outer disposition. So let's see what he says in verse 1 as far as a godly inner discipline is concerned. He begins by saying, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and sojourners or, or strangers. We've got to stop right there. Because there are three things that, that we have already that we need to be reminded about ourselves. One is that we are beloved. You are beloved. The NIV and the King James translates this as dear friends, and I, I think they, the translators mean well, but I don't think that's enough for Christians to know that they are on friendly terms with Peter. The word uh, agape toy means those who are loved, loved ones, be loved. The Christian is a loved person, but by whom? Well, first, you must understand that you are loved by God. We've established the Father delights in and loves the Son, and everyone who is united to the Son gets the Father's love and affection. In Christ, in, in 2.4, we saw that Christ is not just merely a good cornerstone. He is not just the best cornerstone. That's not, a, that's not good enough to speak about Christ. Peter says in 2.4, Christ is the living stone that before God was choice and precious. And when you come to him, you are united to him by the Holy Spirit, and you too become choice and precious in the sight of God. If you're in Christ, then the Father loves you and has set his affection and his delight upon you. Don't forget that. So you are beloved. And it's not enough to, for these precious people to know that they're beloved by God, but also that they are beloved by Peter. Peter, beloved is, is a really important term for Peter because in his two epistles he uses it eight times. Eight times. If you recall, Peter was a little bit of an impetuous guy. He had a tendency to put his foot in, the, foot in his mouth, and he tended to think with his feelings and not with his mind. And I, I, I really see his impetuism being replaced by a warm affection to all, but especially those who are placed under his care. You can see in 122, he's concerned for... Brethren, loving one another, he says, since you have a sincere love for the brethren, fervently love one another. And then in his conclusion to the book, he says to greet one another with a kiss of love. 
Church, you are loved. It's endearing, isn't it? Isn't that good to know? But then he calls you an alien and a stranger. So how do we feel about that? I, he, says, he says, I urge you, I exhort you as aliens and strangers. Now, alien literally means one, one who is beside the house. And this describes someone living in a place where he doesn't belong. And a stranger is the word for a sojourner, which Peter has already used in chapter 1, verse 1. And that's someone who is temporarily residing in a place. They're on, they're on a journey. They, they are not permanently dwelling there. They're not there long enough for their roots to go down because they belong somewhere else. And isn't that a perfect word to describe the Christian, those who do not belong to this world, but we only temporarily reside alongside those who do belong here? So on one hand, we're reminded that we are loved by God, but on the other hand, we are reminded that we do not belong here, that this is not our home. And as we've laid down previously, the world hates us, and given the opportunity, will afflict you at every corner. And for that, Paul reminds the saint, the Christian, the believer, in Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is not here. It's your citizenship. It's not in the, the city you were born in. It's not the state that you were born in. It's not in the country that you were born in or even the planet you were born in. Christian, where is your citizenship? Heaven. Hebrews 13:14 For here we do not have a lasting city but we are seeking the city which is to come. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are an alien and a stranger in addition to being beloved of God. Because your citizenship is in heaven, your life as Colossians 3:4 says, your life, your very life, your soul is hidden with Christ in heaven. And I have no doubt, I have no doubt that there are so many occasions where this world, its principles, its powers, its resources, its rulers bring you and I to the point where it's so good to be reminded of this. These reminders were comforting to the scattered believers that Peter wrote to. Remember that they are scattered that they were former members of his church in Jerusalem where Peter would have pastored over them, and they have been scattered over where we call Turkey, several hundreds and hundreds of miles that they had to walk on foot for fear of their lives. The Jews made life very hard for Christians in Israel, and their scrutiny, their misrepresentation, the Christians' rejection by Jew and Gentile alike seemed to follow them wherever they went. And I can easily imagine them, imagine them wondering if God's love had somehow run out on them. If perhaps they thought it would be better for them to maybe not quite talk about Jesus so much, maybe fit in with the locals just a little more. Peter reminds them, no, you are the beloved of God, and you are a stranger and an alien in this world. Aren't there times where the love of God does not feel present, that the feeling of belonging and having purpose is not present? It's one of the reasons why I don't base my life on feelings. I base my life on facts. That's what Scripture tells us to do. And this is, these are truths that we must be reminded of regularly.
You are beloved, and you are an alien and a stranger here. So as the beloved of God, as aliens and strangers, what are Christians to do? What's, what do we do? Peter tells us, he says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Because we are aliens and strangers, or if you want to use the word pilgrims and sojourners in this world, because we belong to heaven, we ought not to look like or, or sound like or think like or desire like or act like those who belong here. Peter says, I urge you as the beloved of God, as aliens and strangers here, abstain from fleshly lust. Now, this word abstain, it means to avoid contact with, to keep away from, to, to refrain from any involvement in, to, in an activity or to refuse to associate with somebody. You know, when the door-to-door salesman rings your, rings your doorbell or knocks on your door and Rather than go and answer it, you, you tell your kids, shh, we're not here. We're not here. Now, as a, for those of you who don't know me, I used to work for the post office, and there was nothing quite like you know, having 500 stops that I have to go on, and I have a cert, piece of certified mail that I'm obligated to get a signature on. I'm, I, I go up and I knock on the door, and I hear stuff inside, <laughs> and I knock, and I knock, ring the doorbell, Ma'am, I heard you. Your your car's right here. I, you know, abstaining is refusing to open that door. It is it is the first half of repentance of sin. It is the ceasing to be involved with sin. It is the putting off and putting away with the old man and his practices, so that you can bring in the new man with his practices. Now, what do we abstain from? He tells us, fleshly lusts. And we're familiar with that word. We're, we're familiar with lusts. But this is, this is a, a strong word. In, in the Greek, when, when, when the Greek writers want to uh, emphasize something, they throw a, a, a prefix on it. And that, there's a prefix on this. It is, it, so it's not, just, it's not just desire. It's great desire. It's cravings, longings. And sometimes... This word is used to describe good and sincere uh, desires. Paul uses this in Philippians 1.23 when he said he greatly desired to depart and be with Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2.17, he, he desired to see the faces of the brethren. Or the Lord in the upper room said he greatly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. But usually... Usually, this word, it carries its weight when it's talking about carnal desires, fleshly lusts. And to clear up any confusion, Peter throws on that adjective, fleshly, to to tell us exactly what kind of lusts, what kind of strong desires, what kind of urges we are to abstain from. We are to abstain from fleshly desires, fleshly lusts. Now, there are a couple different words in the Greek for body, and this is the word sarx, you know, from where we use sarcophagus. So, and what do you put in a sarcophagus? A dead body. This is the word to describe carnality, flesh, fleshliness. This is the fallen nature of man. This is the nature of man that is 
still in bondage to sin. And were it not for the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, this is your nature that would still render you a slave to unrighteousness. It's often used to describe sexual immorality, but it's not limited to that. And Paul, Paul in two places, kind of gives us the gamut of, of, of what is all uh, subsumed under this concept. He says in Colossians 3, 5, and 8, to consider the members of your earthly bodies as dead to immorality, to impurity, to passion, to evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And then he says uh, in verse 8, put them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech. And then in Galatians 5.19 and following, he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, in case there was anything he missed. We are to abstain from all of these. And beloved, this is something we must do. This is something we must do. This is a real component to the Christian life. Because while we have been regenerated in Christ and we've been given a life that is united to him and and a heart that desires and a heart that loves the things of God, we have yet to receive our glorified body that are like Christ's. And it is our lot to continue in life until the day Christ gives us that immortal body. The good news is that you and I are no longer slaves to sin as the rest of the world is. Amen. We've been free from bondage and slavery to sin. We no longer call it master. The good news is those in Christ have a new master. And our new master calls us to abstain from the urges and the desires of the body and to walk in the spirit of God and to produce his fruits. Christian, be encouraged Because I know it sounds like a hopeless uphill battle, and without Christ, it surely is. But you have Christ, and you have the promise of a resurrection body before you. Paul says, were it not for the hope and the surety of that glorified body that we will have. You know what he says? That Christians are the most pitiable of all men. Were it not for the hope of a new body, we are the most pitiable of all men. Why does he say that? Because if there's no resurrection, if there's nothing on the other side, and the pagan, uh, then the pagans are right and we are the most pitiable because if this life and its troubles are all there is, we beat ourselves up, we deny ourselves, we fight against ourselves for nothing. But, beloved, this life and its troubles is, is not all there is. There is something on the other side, and that's why Paul says in Romans 8.23, he says, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for, the adoption, for our adoption as sons. And he qualifies exactly what that means, the redemption of our body. I wait for a body that doesn't desire sin that doesn't desire to do the things that my mind knows is wrong do you if you're in christ if you're in christ it's coming believe that 
So why must we abstain from fleshly lusts? Well, he tells us they are waging war against you. He says to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. What's the soul? That's you. The soul is not some disembodied part of you. The soul is you. And there are two features of this phrase I I, want to draw out. One is the word which, and the other is wage war. This word which, it's it's a special pronoun that describes the natural quality or the characteristic that is inherently in whatever the object is that it's attached to. So the way Peter is describing our fleshly lust, we should not be surprised by the reminder that they do not take kindly to being abstained from. They do not take kindly to being starved or to being put off or to be considered dead or to be repented of. Your body does, and, its, and your flesh and its desires do not like that. They do not go silently into the night, as it were. So because of that word which, I think it's appropriate to insert a little as you know or obviously or naturally as you read this. Abstain from lustly flesh, which as you know or which naturally or obviously wage war against the body. Don't be surprised that abstaining from fleshly desires is hard. This is what they do. They wage war against us. That is what our flesh has done since the day we became a believer and received a new heart. And this is what the flesh and its lusts are currently doing. And that's which, which is what they will continue to do until we receive our glorified body. Now, that's which. Now, this, on waging war, this, this phrase isn't pointing to a a short scuffle. This isn't a brief, momentary exchanging of the dukes, as it were. This is a, what waging war is a long, protracted, drawn-out affair. It is a campaign. It's more than just a, a brief antagonism. This is relentless, malicious aggression. And this is Peter's way of saying Christian, your remaining sinfulness is a threat. Watch it closely. Take it seriously. Because it's taking you seriously. And don't be surprised that you have to keep taking it seriously and that you have to keep watching out for it and you have to keep dealing with it and cutting off its head like a weed every time it pops up as you continue to walk the Christian life. So we have our practice So to have our practice in Christ mirror our position in Christ, we are to exercise a godly inner discipline. Abstain from fleshly desires which time and time and time again wage war against our souls. A godly inner discipline. that's, That's one half of our marching orders in Christ. We also need to exercise a godly outer discipline. Verse 12. says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So just as, just as it's important for our inner practice, our thoughts and desires and our mental and moral faculties to come into conformity with our position in Christ, so too is it important for our 
outer position or our outer practice to come into conformity with our position in Christ. Beloved, the, per, the, the man or the woman who has been saved by Christ and redeemed by Christ will have all his parts sanctified. While our soul is sanctified, our bodies have yet to be sanctified. And right now our practice, both our, the inner part, the part that nobody but God sees, and the outer part, the thing which your, your friends, your family, your neighbors see, all of that is brought into conformity to Christ. It's being sanctified as we go on in our walk and as we abstain, as we starve, as we, as we put to death, as we consider dead, as we repent of our fleshly lusts. And Peter balances that with a command for believers to express their practical sanctification on the outside. He says, keep your behavior excellent. Keep your conduct noble. Our behavior, our conduct, our way of life, this is the things that people can see, that they they can identify. Our actions, our words, the things we do with our hands, the places we go, the the places we spend our time, the things we buy our money with, the things that we set before our eyes, the things we read, the issues we talk about, what we say about them. How about this? The way we respond to others. Or even better, the way we respond when we're wronged. Christian, keep your behavior honorable. Keep your behavior, your conduct, excellent before the Gentiles. This is everything people can derive from you simply by watching you. That is to be excellent before others. That word excellent is a rich word. It can mean lovely. It can mean fine, winsome, gracious, fair to look at, noble, or or honorable. Whatever is fortunate enough to be given this word as a qualification or as a quality, it has the, the absolute loveliest kind of physical visible goodness that can be found in anything. It has no defects. It has no unsatisfactory qualities. It resembles perfection. It would have been used, or it was used of the jewels that adorned Herod's temple. And if any of you know anything about King Herod, he was a very vain man. Or the word could also be described uh, describe the well-muscled well, athletes of the, 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 Greek, the Greek Olympian games, the, the guys who looked like they were chiseled by Michelangelo. Complete, visible perfection. And Peter says that quality, that, that quality is to mark your behavior. That quality, that standard that level of excellence is to mark your conduct around others. Well, he says Gentiles, and this is another reason I believe his readers are his former church members from Jerusalem. It would make no sense if they themselves were Gentiles, and Peter says, keep your conduct honor amongst the Gentiles. It makes sense that they are Jews. But for us, but for us, the principle would be that our conduct, our behavior is to be honorable and noble and good in, as we're in the midst of whoever we're in the midst of. 
Anybody, everybody. Anybody who watches us. Your coworkers, your friends, even your even your spouse. Keep your conduct honorable before your spouse. Now, time wouldn't permit me to be exhaustive in the ways that we keep our conduct excellent. You remember that long list I read about five minutes ago? Basically, do the opposite of all those things. But let me give you one. Uh, let me give you one that that's real tough, and that's our tempers. R.C. Sproul once said, a person's pet peeves are a lot like landmines. They are dangerous and they are incendiary. The personalities of some people render landmines to be far and few between, and you have to walk a long way before you find something or before you say something that upsets them. But then there are some personalities that produce wall-to-wall landmines. And whatever you say, you provoke that person to rage. He says, our conduct is to be so honorable that people speaking evil against us will not be a landmine. How are you holding up? It doesn't matter. He, 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 he continues to say, it doesn't matter how others behave. It matters how we as Christians behave. We cannot control what other people do but we can control what we ourselves do. And he says, God holds us responsible for that. Beloved, keep your conduct excellent before unbelievers, before those who don't know the Lord. So a question for you, how do you respond when people slander you as an evildoer? How do you respond when you are the one being unjustly wronged, when they treat you with contempt. The sad irony is <laughs> I imagine most of us don't do well when we are merely being held responsible for our own faults and sins, the, the things we say, the, the number of times we put our foot in our mouth, as it were. But do you see the call here is to have excellent conduct and behavior, to be in control of your self and to be humble, especially when you're being repaid evil for doing good. That's the call. That's word evildoer. It is a very strong term. It's the kind of word that would have been used for the likes of Hitler or Ted Bundy or the Unabomber or rapists or murderers. It points to people who are just evil. Evil is what they are. And total Complete judgment is what they deserve. Scandalous people who do unimaginable restrained evil. And Christians were being called this. You want to know what the early church was accused of? What, what evil they were accused of doing? They were called evildoers for supposedly, allegedly, promoting insurrection against Caesar and the Roman governments. They were accused of being atheists. You get It sounds kind of odd, right? Well, that's because they refused to acknowledge the Roman pantheon as gods, and they refused to acknowledge Caesar as God, which, the, according to the Romans, if you reject 
those gods, then, then you don't believe in any gods. So they were called atheists. They were accused with cannibalism. Because all this talk about you know, eating, eating someone's flesh and drinking their blood in, 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 their, in their love feasts. It was even alleged that they were eating children. They were accused of wrecking homes, upsetting, upsetting the order of things, giving wives dignity as human beings, giving slaves dignity as human beings. They were accused of damaging trade, of, of prohibiting social progress. Ever hear that before? They were accused of incest. They were accused of leading, uh, encouraging slaves to rebel against their masters. And they were, refu- they were accused of hating men because they, they, they dared to bring women up to the same level as men in the eyes of God. And the call for Christians, in, in spite of that kind of slander, in, in spite of that kind of evil being said against them, the call for Christians is to remain honorable, to, re, to remain respectful, to have an excellent disp- display of behavior. That's a tall order. But that's the order nonetheless. And Peter is going to, Peter understands that is a, that is a tall order. And he's going to point us to Christ and demonstrate how Christ himself did that very thing. And Christ himself is the example which you and I are to look to as we try to do this. And he's going to get, he's going to, get to that in about eight verses. And I don't want to steal my own thunder a couple of sermons from now. So whenever you struggle in abstaining from your flesh and whenever you struggle with re- keeping your conduct honorable... Don't look to me. Don't look to Carl. Don't look to the best Christian you know. Look to the Lord. Look to his example. So we're to keep a Christ-like attitude and, and, and keep our conduct honorable. Now, why do we do this? Why, why do we repay evil with excellent, with honorable conduct? Why do we stay firmly planted in that Christ-like behavior, as I, as I mentioned. Why do we do that? Why do we humbly and meekly endure difficulty and frustration at the hands of unbelievers? Why do we do that? Well, Peter tells us. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your deeds as they observe them, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. We do this, we keep a Christ-like attitude, especially when we're wronged, so that those who are doing the slandering, those who are doing the evil against us, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Now there's coming a day when unbelievers will glorify God, and that is the day of God's visitation upon them. Now, what is the day of visitation? And how is it that unbelievers will glorify God in that day? There are two chief interpretations to this as to what Peter means here. 
And the first is that the day of visitation is referring to the day in which unbelievers, those who are doing the slandering, those who are and observing your good deeds, that they themselves will be visited by God. They will be visited by God and uh, by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. They will be visited by Christ in substitution, and they will be visited by the Father in adoption. That's one interpretation. The other is that the day is, is which is the day which unbelievers, those who are slandering you, that they will face justice, they will face retribution, that God will visit them in judgment. Now, the majority position is the first, and that's the position I take, because I, I think it is the better interpretation. Peter, first, Peter will go on to say in chapter 3, verse 1, as he's describing what good works are. He says, in, in describing the good works of the Christian wife, that she is to have a life marked by submission to her husband, because if, if, if he is an unbeliever, that she might, he he says, win him over to salvation, not by words, but by her Christ-like behavior. She might win him over without a word, but by her behavior. And visitation also has the idea of coming near and drawing and making one's presence primarily for a benevolent cause primarily to to do good and to benefit the person. So the and the, the word for visitation is episcopes. It's it's where we get the word bishop. It's the word that that it's a synonym for the pastor's duty to shepherd to exercise oversight as 1 Peter 5:2 says. Now maybe some of you feel that when a pastor visits you that it is a day of judgment. But hopefully Hopefully you feel that when a pastor visits you, when a pastor spend time, spends time with you and calls you and talks with you and encourages you, it, that you see it as an encouragement, that you see it as an admonition for an edification for your good. And it, while it is true that unbelievers, they will contribute to God's glory in the day that they are judged, it's true that God sovereignly passes over and refrains from converting every soul that has ever lived. Isaiah 29:16, 45:9, and Jeremiah 18:6 serves as really the Old Testament grounds for which Paul will say in Romans 9:20-24, specifically in verse 22, that God endures with much patience vessels of wrath because He wants to make His wrath and his power known. So while that is true, I don't believe that's the intent of 1 Peter 2.12. I think a benevolent visitation fits the context better. And doesn't this give us a great encouragement, especially for any Christian spouse who has an unbelieving spouse? for a Christian parent who has an unbelieving child, for anyone who has an unbelieving brother or sister or aunt or uncle or a dear friend, isn't it encouraging to know that God could use your excellent conduct, your 
noble and honorable behavior as the means by which that person that you care about might stop and consider their ways, that they might stop and think about the Lord, that they might be drawn to the Lord by your example. This does happen in the visible church sometimes. I don't see how it could not, couldn't do anything but encourage the Christian who has someone that they care so dearly about who does not yet know the Lord and to know that someday God might use you to draw them to himself. And the same, Christian, the same goes for your coworkers or friends or anybody that God has placed in your life. Anyone who is within your sphere of influence. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter what school you go to. God has a way of putting people in your lives that you influence. Beloved, the world is watching you. Peter, Peter says as much. Look at, the, look at the second to the last clause. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them. That's present tense. That's something that they are doing all the time. The world is watching. Your good works are being observed. Be sure that you're full of them so that the glory and the pleasure of your Lord be mag- might be magnified and that your neighbor might shut his mouth the next time he's about to slander you, that he might be convicted by the difference of your testimony and the demonstration of God's changing graces in your life, keep your conduct honorable. It's so good to let your practice in Christ reflect your position in Christ, isn't it? Isn't it? sure is. You know, your neighbor might thank you one day.